Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful snowy morning. We pray that you would be with us as we open your word together, as we gather around the, the Lord's table during our service today. Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep our minds focused on you and your goodness and lifting you up. And Lord, that you would uh, bind up our broken hearts in, in light of uh, the loss of our, our good friend Steve. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to uh, just cast our cares on you and, and uh, throw ourselves at, at your feet and, and uh, ask you for mercy. And Lord, we pray that you would be uh, powerfully present with us as we uh, take part in the reading of your word, the breaking of bread, all of the things that your your word and, and your son Jesus told us to do. And, and uh, Lord, we pray that we would find comfort in them. Uh, we pray also that you would help us to uh, live in this year as disciples and followers of Jesus uh, in an even more uh, committed way and, and uh, follow him more closely and, and stray less uh, than in years past. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, we are on question 69. What is faith in Jesus? Together, the answer is... Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is set forth in the gospel. What a great answer. I mean, they're all good answers, but that is, that is tightly written and edited. Um, faith in Jesus Christ, and it starts with, is a saving grace that tells us two things, right? One, it saves you. Two, it is a gift to you. It is not something that you dredge up or manufacture or decide to embrace inside of yourself. It is something given to you, we would say infused into you, uh, and it is something that then we should thank God for, not something that, as sometimes in the, the church, is the underlying attitude God ought to thank us for. Hey, I've got this faith in you. Hey, good job. a boy. Uh, no, he's like, yeah, I know. I gave it to you. So what are you going to do with it? Uh, and so this is something that we want to draw as a distinction between several different ways of thinking about faith. I want to talk about four different types of faith found in Scripture. And these four different types of faith uh, are not necessarily all saving faith. They're not necessarily all the use of the word pistis uh, in the Greek that falls in line with the notion of our putting ourselves, in these words, upon him alone for salvation, throwing ourselves in his, on his mercy alone. Uh, there are different ways this is used, and I think sometimes we conflate and confuse different types of faith. Uh, one example is when you're in James chapter 2. And you read about, uh, you believe there is one, in fact, scratch that, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Let's start looking up some passages. And since the snow has kept many away, uh, let's all take a few here as we go today. Um, somebody look up Acts 8.13, someone else James 2.19. Say those both again. Acts 8.13 and James 2.19. And this first category of faith, we will call historical 
faith. Who's got Acts 8.13? I've got it. Let's hear it. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, what Simon are we talking about here? Is this the sorcerer? Simon, yes. Magus. So, he's claiming to be in the line of the Magi of Babylon and Persia. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Probably not. That sounds like something somebody would do today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something like Freemasonic about it. Like, there's been many centuries of gap, but uh, Cagliostro is actually the guy who taught me my craft. Um, well, let's, let's hear the other one first, and then we'll discuss. Uh, James 2.19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Okay, so that is the word pisteo in the Greek, the same one uh, that's used in the imperative, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, and what is he going to say about pistis, faith, same root, um, that is without works? It's dead. It's dead, right? So he's, he's talking about needing to kind of make up for something that's lacking in faith. And what is it that makes up for it? It's works. And then you say, hold on, what about Ephesians 2 and all of Paul's writings in which it's faith, not works, that save us? Do we have some kind of uh, con conflict here? Uh, and the answer is no. You just have to recognize that the same word is often used in different ways. We recognize that in our everyday life all the time. If I say I went to the Florida Keys, you don't picture a ring with keys on it unless you're a little kid and you don't know what the Florida Keys are. You recognize there are different ways we use different words, and this is no exception. So when we're talking about historical faith, um, by the way, I guess I should assume that you know what happens with Simon the Sorcerer. Um, what, what is the kind of coda to that story? Is he, does he become the, the Bishop of Samaria or a, a very highly regarded saint over the ages? I don't remember saying He tries to buy something. The Holy Spirit. Oh, right, yeah. He's like, oh my gosh, that would help my act a lot. Here's some silver. And what does Peter say to him? May your money perish with you. That is a really harsh rebuke. So certainly it says early on he, he believed, but then it doesn't seem to bear fruit. Uh, it seems that his, his, there was some belief. It doesn't say he claimed to believe, and then later on we find out he didn't. Rather, his belief was of a different Kind. Believing in a different thing, or like it, like it was, would you say intellectually, like, oh, okay, that makes sense, but. Yeah, so when we talk about historical faith, we're talking about an ascent, an intellectual ascent, yes, a mental ascent to, to facts. Uh, wicked men can do this. A lot of people have said, oh, wow, yeah, I see, looking at the evidence, if I'm being honest and not pushing an agenda or following uh, a narrative. Jesus seems to have lived, died, risen again even. Uh, I mean, you, you start asking the questions, make for, you know, there's, there's the million dollar thing of take the four gospels and harmonize them. You can't do it. There's too many. It, it's a harder, it's not that hard of a job. The harder job is make for me one narrative in which Christians are willing to die for a lie. These 12 guys go to the, you know, the most unspeakable torturous deaths for a lie, in which 500 people all at the same time and place say, yeah, I saw this guy alive. I have a mass hallucination the only time. In so, so there can be people who like, yeah, that seems to be the case. 
but their belief is a cold, yeah, this is a fact I believe, just like they might believe any number of facts. They might believe that the speed limit is 35, but goes 65. That's a different kind of belief than I believe in the concept of the speed limit, so I will follow it, right? It doesn't necessarily inform life. Um, devils do this, not just wicked men, but devils believe there's one God and even respond in a, in a certain amount, uh, to a certain extent, which is they, they tremble. That's sort of the beginning of the story of like the case for Christ, of Lee Strobel's like, looking for this intellectual evidence. Yeah. But at some point, it changes for him. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie they made of that, amazing. It was so good. You've got devils, wicked men, and people who are like good people who would have that belief. Like, oh, yes. Like, and well, all Christians have this belief, right? Right. But I'm saying like people who wouldn't get to the point where they actually have real faith. Right, so, I mean, I think all people who have it are initially wicked, <laughs> wicked, oh, yeah. we're all wicked. Some people, in, in some people, this will develop into or lead them into a saving faith. Right. But in some, this becomes a cold, false comfort, a false hope that says, well, yeah, okay, I've, I've kind of signed on the dotted line. I've, I've told people I believe in Jesus to some degree. I, yeah, I believe in him. And it's called historical because it, it is just an assent to, to facts rather than, it's, it's you know, knowing and believing in things rather than knowing and believing in a person, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But also it's called historical, I think, because it relegates God to the past. This is usually, I mean, there's, there's a, it's not impossible to have a historical faith that is just an intellectual faith that even acknowledges Miracles now, perhaps, or something, but I think we're then getting into the third category of things. So generally, this is going to say, it's almost a deist kind of thing, but a modified deism. Deism being the idea that God's like a clockmaker. This was basically the religion of America when it was founded. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it was a Christian. No, it wasn't a Christian nation. It was a deist nation. And the idea was God is a clockmaker up in heaven. He made the thing with all the gears, the universe, how it operates. He wound it up, and then he was like, okay, go ahead. They acknowledged there had to have been a grand architect to all this. They didn't see him monkeying with the everyday. And kind of the historical faith has a modified view of God did come into the everyday, even to the point of, you know, death on the cross and things. But I can just believe that stuff happened, and it doesn't need to affect now. So it's not going to... Uh, change my heart, my mind. It's, it's, it's going to leave me where I was just with something new locked in my mind. Um, that's not saving faith. Obviously, the devils aren't saved. Obviously, Peter is hoping there might be some chance of, let's see, here's, here's Peter's answer for Simon, uh, the, the sorcerer. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So he's looking at him and saying, you, are, you did believe something. You did have some form of faith, but you're still lost. You're still in your sins. You still need to repent and ask God to forgive you. And that's a very common situation, I think, for people. And, and I think Aaron's uh, observation about 
say Lee Strobel, or there's a lot of people who start with a kind of an intellectual wanting to poke holes in Christianity and start to kind of say, hmm, you know, Anthony Flew is a great example, one of the really most brilliant people and, and most famous atheist, famous atheist, famous atheist, famous atheist, <laughs> uh, beginning to say, hmm, this is, or, or more recently, um, Anthony Hopkins, uh, the actor, uh, he went to some kind of alcohol rehab and, and found God, and there were a lot of uh, reports of him becoming a Christian, um, which I found very exciting. Uh, you read it, into it and you go, okay, he's not there yet. He's doing the thing of acknowledging kind of a higher power. It's good, but we'll need to become something more if this is really the kind of faith that, that uh, the Bible's talking about when it says we're saved by faith. Uh, secondly, there's temporary faith. Now, this is going to be building on the first one. So like historical faith, add onto it some transient, shallow sense of guilt. Uh, we're not going to read 2 Corinthians 7.10 because we're going to look closely at that next week, but that is where we talk about um, the two different kinds of repentance or sorrow over sin, uh, the kind that leads to life and the kind that leads to death. Uh, and this would be the kind that, that is Judas, not Peter, guilt. The kind that says, I'm so sorry I got caught. I'm so sorry I'm dealing with this. And even I'm just sorry that I did it, but it's a human temporary penitence. And that infuses the historical faith with a kind of a sense of uh, being saving faith. But it's a false sense. It may move into the emotions and it may endure for a time before then vanishing. And when this happens, it, 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 when this happens with other people around you, especially if you are involved in trying to lead them to, to faith, it can kind of rock your own faith because it makes you wonder, you know, is this whole thing just a trick we're playing on ourselves or is there any power in it? I want you to remember the parable of the sower when this happens, that Jesus told us before you ever scattered the first seed of the gospel that this would be one of the major categories of soil. The one who receives the seed that fell on rocky places. Remember what happens with that? It begins to grow, but then there's, there's no way the roots can really take hold because the soil is, is uh, rocky. And uh, he describes this as, uh, it's the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, he quickly falls away. Which um, verses are you? That is Matthew 13, 20, and 21. And so I think we have no real choice when someone begins to show signs of some kind of uh, penitence or sense of their own sinfulness and, and a, a desire to repent, to treat it as authentic faith. And I don't think you want to be walking around going, hmm, that might not be the real thing. That might be this temporary faith. But you set yourself up then for kind of some heartbreak when, you know, one out of five, I don't think that's going to necessarily be the, <laughs> the um, percentages, but, but the number of categories uh, is going to be somebody who, who will walk away when persecution comes. That's why we see a lot of times uh, Christians who have even maybe been in the church for a long time when it's going to cost them something or when even life kind of hits them sideways and they go, well, wait, this doesn't protect me from suffering. I don't need it then and, and walk away. And you go, how can that happen? 
is this not what we thought it was? No, it is what we thought it was because there is the category of the good soil in which the Holy Spirit tills it, breaks up all those rocks, and it grows and bears fruit 10, 30, even 100-fold. This can be accompanied by temporary repentance. I guess I already said that, but let's look at some texts. Uh, 2 Peter 2.20 and Hebrews 6, 4-5. That's 2 Peter 2.20 and Hebrews 6, 4-5. Does anyone have Second Peter? If not, I've got it. All right, let's hear it. For if after they have escaped the uh, defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The late state has become worse for them than the first. So, yeah, there's... In fact, let's before discussing, let's hear that uh, Hebrews 6, that's the same... Topic. Let's hear it. Uh, did you say four and five? Yeah. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Did I read the right one? Yeah. Is there a little more of the sentence? Maybe no. should have gone to six. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. All right, so that should be uh, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, not 4 to 5. And both of those talk of the same thing. That is someone who becomes seemingly a believer, then abandons it. And the assessment is they're far worse off than they were before. Uh, Their hearts are hardened now to the gospel this is something they tried and it didn't work. They're not going to hear it and, and be overcome with a sense of, of penitence again. Um, now, I think we need to be very careful about being the judge of when this has happened uh, because there is a, such a thing as backsliding. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Well, too bad. You've already held up my cross as something to be scorned and condemned and, or up for contempt. Um, so there's nothing left for you. He, he says, well, then... I restore you. And that's the situation of, you know, First John 1. That's the situation of every Christian every day uh, is that you have walked away from him not just once, but a lot of times. There's a, something definitive here. Um, willful sin, a, a true hardening of the heart and walking away and, and leaving behind Jesus. Uh, and, you know, I, w- w- this isn't about losing salvation that one had. This is, talk, talks about having a taste of it. And it is very difficult. For example, someone who's raised in the church and then goes to college and decides, ah, that was all just malarkey that my parents, you know how college kids talk, malarkey. Um, and then later on, it's, it's not that they're unable ever to come to faith after uh, having had a, a unsaving experience of it, but it certainly becomes very difficult for it to have the effect. There's, there's a searing of the conscience, there's a, a scarring of the soul, kind of, the, the sensitivity isn't there you know all the stuff, but it hasn't had an effect on you. Um, I have a, I've talked many times about a guy that I lived with for years that was my uh, best buddy, and he was going to be a missionary, and I was going to be a pastor, and he's now the furthest thing, mocking Christianity, you know, certainly has no um, sense that, that he's a sinner or needs to repent. And 
I read these passages and I say, sadly, I think I see him in it, uh, that, that I don't have great hope that he will come to faith because he's already had a form of faith and his, his condition now is certainly worse than it was before he, he had any sense of his sinfulness or his need for a savior. Do you think that this is why um, people want to be rebaptized? Maybe. I think just... Uh, I mean, like, let's take your friend. Okay. Let's say that um, he does have now a uh, life-changing experience and comes to faith again. I can see that he would want to be somebody that would want to recommit himself and a way to do that visibly would be to be baptized again. Right. I mean, it has been 25 years. We lived together in college. It's been 25 years. So I think he would have to acknowledge this wasn't a backslide. This was a false conversion. If he did, and, and I would... Yeah, if someone came to me and said... it didn't take? Not that it didn't take. Rather that it, it wasn't an outward sign of an actual inward anything. There was nothing inward that was legitimate, that was, that was God at work. And I, I rarely assent to, to baptizing someone again. I would in the case of a 25-year uh, period of wandering in the wilderness and scorning the gospel and posting pictures of Jesus with a doobie and, you know, all sorts of blasphemous stuff. Um, yeah, I would say, yeah, good. I'm glad you came to faith. Let's, let's baptize you. Um, but I had one of our youth uh, years ago uh, was at camp and I got a call and they said, oh, this person wants to be baptized. And I said, I baptized that person three years ago. No, you're you're not to baptize that person uh, tomorrow morning in the lake. Well, well, no, hold on. They they recommitted their life to Jesus. I said I would need to talk to that person about and and in talking to them, I found out that it was one of these situations of I'd been with the wrong crowd, doing the wrong things, and just wanted a, a fresh start. And I think it's really a bad. Um, experience and reinforces a bad idea about what salvation is to want to get rebaptized every time we have a season of sin. Uh, it, it almost implies this notion that we have to, Christ needs to die again and bleed again for us every time. We weren't covered until yeah, no, this, it, and then I've got the clean slate and I better not mess up again. Right, yeah, yeah. Rather, every day we ought to be confessing our sins and repenting. And when we fall out of the habit of that, just like the prodigal son and come to ourselves, we don't have to like start over. We can come, you know, and be born again, again as a baby and be raised again. We come running home in our rags and he comes running out and embraces us and says, kill the fatted calf. That's the kind of God that we have. Uh, the difference is uh, if, I mean, there could have been a prodigal son at some point who was eating the pods and very calculatedly said, gosh, it would be smart to go home and look as humble and broken as possible and play on my dad's uh, sense of uh, fatherly love and care and, and uh, his sympathies. And it wouldn't have been true faith and it wouldn't have been a good picture. But I, yeah, I, I think that the sense of being rebaptized, the, the desire for it, nine times out of ten is just a lack of understanding what baptism is. But yeah, if there is one case for it, Cindy, I think you're right, it would be somebody recognizing that they had had a temporary faith, not a saving faith. Uh, the third one is faith of miracles. Believing that by the power of God, something supernatural or extraordinary can, can happen or has happened, has been accomplished by the power of God specifically. And 
uh, it's there to confirm a message of some kind. Uh, so we think of the Mosaic Law, we think of Pharaoh, uh, you think of another Simon, Bar-Jesus, uh, the crowds following Jesus. Uh, there are many examples in, in the Bible of people going, whoa, that's something. That's not nothing. There's something happening at the top of that mountain I don't want any part of. God's at work. Uh, there's a reason why my palaces are filled with frogs and guys with boils. This God is at work. Uh, and having to acknowledge something extraordinary has happened. Um, to some degree, maybe even Simon the Sorcerer might have had a, a kind of a hybrid of this and, and historical faith. Because what reveals that his faith was not saving faith is that he looks at a miracle, which is the operating of the Holy Spirit, always a miracle, and says, oh, that's cool, that's real, I want it. But it doesn't involve penitence. Uh, let's. Before you go on, can you repeat like the idea of what you were saying that these supernatural occurrences are there to? Did you say confirm something or? Yeah, confirm a message. Confirm a message. Okay, sorry. And you know, it's it's possible certainly to believe the gospel even and not be saved. It's possible to believe and be happy that the gospel is true and not be saved because you have not received it. Uh, There's all sorts of different ways that the word pistis is used in the New Testament. Uh, And having seen a miracle in someone else may make you go, wow, yeah, that's, that's some real. Something changed that person in a way they could not change themselves because I've seen them try to change themselves a hundred times. And yet, if we don't come to him uh, with saving faith, which is the fourth category here, we're going to find find ourselves again in worse worse shape than before. It's like um, the parable of, what is that, Luke Luke 9? Uh, It's not even a parable. It's just teaching uh, in a metaphorical way that if you cast out a demon the demon goes to arid places looking for someone somewhere to rest and then finding none comes back and says, oh, wow, this place is, uh, that I just was cast out of, it's clean and in order. I think there's room for me and seven of my buddies. And, and now the state, the last state is worse than the first state. Uh, and that becomes kind of a metaphor for the kind of outward reform religion that doesn't change the heart. If we by our efforts, by our resolutions, maybe something people are thinking about, maybe something I'm preaching about, um, by our own elbow grease, get out, expel out some of the bad, but there's no Holy Spirit here. We're just leaving ourselves open to later on being in a worse state than before. Um, actually, Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So it's, it's possible not, not just to believe in miracles, but even to have done miracles and not have had saving faith. Jesus is so clear about that. Why is that? Huh. Why would God enable somebody to do a miracle who didn't have true faith? Uh, I think it has to do with the power of God's word. It has to do with uh, the power of the gospel. I mean, so think about the fact that Judas cast out demons. Judas healed people. Judas also preached the gospel and people came to true saving faith. Uh-huh. 
but Judas had uh, worldly sorrow, which leads to death. And, I mean, think about Paul saying in Philippians uh, that other people are, are preaching the gospel to spite him, and, and he rejoices. Whether out of good or bad motives, Christ is preached. And there's power in that regardless. God's word won't return void. Um, I think we're, we have to be careful in thinking about that category, not to fall into the Simon uh, Magus way of thinking of uh, it's magical and I you know, can take it and, and use it for my own ends. Uh, but certainly, I mean, even Pharaoh's, think, speaking of Pharaoh and, and, and Pharaoh having had faith of miracles to some degree, because he responds by saying, you, you people can all go. Um, Pharaoh's magicians. I mean, we're getting into areas where people are going to start, you know, wanting to hedge on the Bible a little bit, and, and people who are on the fence about its uh, historical truth may want to start backing off a bit, but it says they were able to replicate all of the plagues up to a certain point, and that means there was either a lot of sleight of hand going on, and, and the Bible just fails to mention it, or there is some power even in kind of dark arts and, and uh, spiritual things. I, I certainly believe that's true, uh, that there is a spirit world. And so the fact that someone can cause something to happen in, in this world does not, I mean, I don't know why God allows that to happen other than, I haven't thought this through, but let me say, I think that, that it's, that the spirit world is more integrated and part of our world than we understand it to be most of the time. That it's not some separate thing that you, that it's all intertwined. And the fact that somebody can create an end by a means doesn't mean that they themselves are born again. Just like I can, gosh, I can turn that chair over. I can create all sorts of ends in this world. Uh, and it doesn't tell you anything about who I am inside. I can fake it. I, yeah, that's a hard question. I don't I have... I to ask the question until this second, so I don't expect you to have, like, a well thought... I don't think there can be... I think this that gets into the mystery, mysteries of God that, that are the hidden, the secret things that are, that are beyond our ability. Unless someone else has a, a great answer you have thought through. I haven't thought it through, but God needed that miracle, though. So... <laughs> Oh. Yeah, so maybe, yeah, God, it ends, yeah, yeah, God is, is accomplishing, he's always accomplishing things through broken vessels anyway. I mean, God needed Judas to do what he did. Somebody had to do that. So, but you do see why people can be deceived. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people very easily deceived. I mean, you know, we just got to the end of the year, so... In the reading of the Bible, you just have read Revelation, and you read about, you know, that everyone, you know, people will be marked with the sign of the beast, and, you know, those that have been deceived, you know, then will be cast out, and it's like, there's a lot of deception. And, I mean, it makes you think about, okay, Jesus said the door was really narrow, I mean, Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am, am I want to have real faith? Yeah. Did I have a real baptism experience? Yes. Am I marked with the beast? <laughs> it, these are all good questions. <clears throat> they really are, because it says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Um, to, to test whether your faith is true and 
we want to continually be doing that. We don't want to have a presumption. There's, there's the Roman Catholic notion that presumption is a sin because it assumes you've gotten yourself into the right position via the sacraments and your own uh, faith and works, etc. And whereas you should be a little unsure, uh, I think probably that we would find its roots. This is the cynical me talking in uh, the medieval church wanting to keep everyone a little off balance so that when it's time to, for the coin in the coffer to cling, they're like, ooh, I may or may not be in. Let's, let's seal the deal. Um, but I think there is a um, biblical presumption that we want to avoid, which is I said a prayer in 1972, therefore I'm good. I just think about that prayer rather than looking for fruit, looking for ongoing relationship with God, uh, grow, deepening in our faith and maturity, etc., th- that we would be testing these things and, and drawing ever closer to him and closer to him uh, rather than just going, yeah, done. That part of my life is taken care of. Uh, we'll revisit it on my deathbed. So my pastor is saying, don't have too much faith in my faith. No, but at the same time, <laughs> today in the service, you're going to say uh, something about being assured that your sins are forgiven. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Based on Christ's promise, well, let's just talk about what, how, what is save, saving faith or faith of justification. What is the faith in Ephesians 2? Everyone, did, we don't need to look it up. Was Ephesians 2 8? Anybody? Ephesians 2 8 and 9. Very famous passage. For it's by grace that so you are saved through faith. I'm trying to write too many things down. <laughs> okay, stop trying to write too many things down. No, I'm trying to write down the minute you already said, but you're going Would on. you like me to just read it? Yeah, let's hear it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that you, so that no one may boast. This is the faith by which we receive Christ and rest upon him alone for salvation, which was what the answer was initially to the, the question in the catechism. Faith by which we receive Christ and rest upon him alone for salvation. If that is what we are doing I think we can rest assured that we are saved. And when you hear those words, having confessed your sins, be assured that your sins are forgiven, you can take them to heart and you don't need to worry, wait a minute, was my penitence? I mean, especially as someone who is a believer who's been following Jesus for any amount of time, you can say, I keep sinning, but I keep repenting and he keeps sanctifying and refining and I've seen this happening and there is fruit in my life uh, I can know that this is the real deal that because not because I have a super excellent quality of faith but because this is me resting on him alone and him at work in me first uh, Corinthians 4 7 I will just read because for some reason I'm right on the page already for whom may uh, for who makes you different from anyone else What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So I think the understanding, and this is something much of the larger kind of non-denom evangelical uh, world in the West is losing. If we recognize that our our faith is something we have received and therefore not something that we can boast about, like we read about here, uh, then that is a great mark of saving faith. 
that you receive you received it. It acknowledges your own sinfulness, your inability to get out of the miry pit, uh, and that you were pulled out, washed clean, and being made new. It is, as the question and answer say, a grace, meaning a gift of God, freely bestowed upon us. And this is one of the first things we teach kids, right, about faith. John 3.16. You don't need to look that one up, do you? Anybody have that for me? Okay. There, that's, that's the gospel in a nutshell, right? If our, our subdividing of categories of faith and thing, things like that seem to detract from that or make that less powerful, we're getting too heady. And we're, and we're losing the simplicity of the gospel. Um, there are warnings about uh, having a just simple assent of, of facts, faith. There are warnings about people who acknowledge God's great works or have a temporary sense of guilt, but it doesn't take. They have no root. At the root of everything, though, is a simple message. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The believe there is a use of that word pisteo to mean saving faith, the kind of faith, and think about who he's talking to here. He's already just told this guy, you're the teacher of Israel, and you are really kind of swinging a miss at some of the, the slowest you know, pitches I can give you here. You need to start over. You need to accept this as a child. The way a child you know, will just throw herself in her parents' arms and say, oh, you'll catch me. You know, like that is what we need right now. That's the kind of faith that is saving faith. It says, I receive this entirely. It is a grace and I am resting on him and him only. Not holding back 10%, even 1%, um, just throwing ourselves on him and him alone. And when we do that, we will not be disappointed and we will not be abandoned and we won't find ourselves on the last day in the wrong camp, goats instead of sheep. Throwing yourself at the mercy of Jesus is salvation itself. John 3, 36, at the very end of that same chapter, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Again, this believes in doesn't mean, oh yeah, I think there's a big guy in the sky, but rather throwing yourself at the grace of God uh, and resting upon him alone, Christ alone, for salvation. I think that uh, what language we use about being saved is both revealing of how we understand it and is important for how people learn about what it means to be saved. And this has been a hobby horse of mine for decades, and I haven't hobbied it very much recently. Um, but I do think it, it makes a difference. And it can, the, the way that the church talks about salvation at large can form how an, a generation thinks about salvation for good or for bad. When I was a kid, 100%, if you were in a Baptist church or you were in an evangelical church, the way we spoke about salvation was, did you uh, invite Jesus into your heart? Ask Jesus into your heart? Let Jesus into your heart? That was kind of the standard way to talk about salvation. Uh, pulling a course from um, Second Hesitations <laughs> 1134, 
Nowhere in the Bible. I mean, there's one reference to Christ in your hearts in Ephesians. We already dealt with that not long ago, preaching through Ephesians. Uh, but it's not talking about you asking Jesus into your heart as a shortcut for salvation. No, this is how I was saved. My dad told me to pray this. I'm sorry for my sins. Please come into my heart and save me. I don't think that was some invalid salvation. I knew what it meant, even though I was only five at the time, probably. I understood. But that's an abstract way of talking about a concrete idea. And so I think if we're trying to help kids understand faith, it's, kids can't understand abstract ideas as early as we start throwing this stuff at them. Why not just use biblical language instead of ask Jesus into your heart? Or, or my, my nephew, Bray, who's now a grown man, uh, I remember he went to a Sunday school class and some wonderful Sunday school teacher told him about Jesus and how he needed to tell Jesus this and ask Jesus into his heart and do all this stuff. And, and he told my sister, I want to do this. And he was shaking. He was scared. And he said, will you come with me? She said, what are you talking about? He said, to heaven, to talk to Jesus, will you come with me? He thought he had to go to heaven. It was confusing, um, the, the language that was used. Uh, another way that I often heard growing up was make him your Lord and Savior. What's, what's the problem here? You're doing something. I'm making him. You don't make him. He makes you. <laughs> he, made, he made you. And if he's going to make you something new, he's going to, to make you. And, and again, I'm, I'm not suggesting that there's any um, problem with someone's salvation if this is the language they used. Again, I, I, I myself uh, knew what I was saying. But why wouldn't we be as clear as possible? Another one, give your life to him or invite him into your life. All of these are very active on my part, right? All of these are me doing something. Often they're me letting God do something if he's doing anything. Like removing the, uh, or, or, or the old misuse of Revelation 3.20, right? I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him. We miscast that all the, all the way through. First of all, as Jesus at the door of your heart, like that painting of, you know, Anglo mullet Jesus, knocking on the door. If you look at that painting from a distance, you can see it's kind of clever. It's the lighting makes it look like a kind of Valentine heart. And he looks so sad and pale and wan. And he's, <laughs> no one, and, and you feel bad for Jesus. And this is even used. Kids, don't you feel bad for this Jesus? That's the subtext. Open the door and let him in. This poor guy, look at how wafish he is. He needs a good meal. He wants to come in and eat with you. Uh, when in reality, when we read about salvation, He's not waiting, no, please let me in. Pathetic Jesus. He's battering ram, you know, blowtorch. He's knocking down the door of your heart because you would never open it from the inside. Revelation 3.20 is about Jesus standing outside of the church of Laodicea and he's the only guy they're not letting in. Why am I out here? If anyone lets me in, I'll, I'll come in and eat with that person, but no one's let me in thus far. So that's a, a misuse of a text um, even, you know, the, these ideas of God being the agent, but us being the deciding factor, I find troubling. But again, I think that the older I get, the more I understand uh, that even a Calvinist and Arminian view of things are probably more often than not two people talking about the same thing from two different directions. You know, looking at salvation from man's point of view and from God's point of view. I, I don't think we want to downplay the fact that we must personally believe uh, that without a personal faith 
on my part, even if I'm brought to church all the time, even if I'm you know, given uh, the sacraments and all this stuff, I need to believe. I'm going to stand before him and he's going to say either I know you or I don't. I think that one of the, the best ways, instead of accepting him, a passive slash active kind of way to think about it, a, an active verb that is a passive idea is receiving Christ. This is John 1, 12, John 3, 27, and Acts 10, 43. John 1, 12, you know, to all who receive him, he has been given the right, he has given the right to become children of God. I'm right on the John 3, so I'll read that one as well. Uh, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, this is talking to John the Baptist, well, he is baptizing and, and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. Uh, And this idea of receiving, I think it may be a little bit of a over-dichotomizing, but uh, I think we want to say receive rather than accept. Because to me, accept is more active. I'm not going to go to the wall on this. I want to hear if there's some discussion on it. But when we hear about receiving, uh, think about Luke 18 and John 9. Receive your sight. What is receiving? It's being like, like you received gifts at Christmas. I hope you all received gifts. Um, you, you receive it. You've got it. You didn't like go out and get it and kill it and take it home. It was given to you and you received it. So you did something. You did receive it. You could have swatted it away. You could have said, no, I don't want that. Get away from me. I don't want to be in your debt or something weird like that. But you didn't. You received it. But it was given to you. You were the recipient, not the, the agent in that transaction. Uh, even Paul receives his sight, Acts 22. I think that's probably the best picture. Amazing grace, that great hymn. I once was blind, but now I see. What was the difference? I received my sight. I received salvation. I received forgiveness of sins. I received Christ himself. I think receiving Christ is the best way, quickly and under, uh, shorthand kind of, for all of us as Christians to talk about salvation in a way that's not overly uh, personal and treacly, uh, like inviting Jesus into your heart, is not overly um, Calvinist and impersonal, like, you know, having been chosen from before the foundation of the world. Were you chosen before the foundation of the world? I mean, that's biblical language, but it's very impersonal from our point of view. And how could you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I know I was. <laughs> no, but like if you were asking somebody that, like why would they be able to say yes? I think you'd be flexing as a, a kind of Theo bro at that point. But like, um, have you received Christ? When did you receive Christ? I think anyone from almost any tradition, not every, but almost every tradition within Christianity is going to be able to get that because it comes up in the Bible a lot and it's a picture again and again of us receiving salvation as a gift Whereas if I ask, I remember I asked this Lutheran girl I was dating, when did you put your faith in your, when, when did you ask Jesus in your heart? No, I didn't think I said I think that. You asked me I said, when, I was saved. when were you saved? Even that, I think, <laughs> well, I that, that which is funny because that was kind of what Luther was recovering in but the that's whole not Reformation. The <laughs> for good or for bad. Um, but if I had said, when did you receive Christ? Maybe you would have been just as confused, but. You would have been able to think to your confirmation. You would have been able to think to um, the first time you received the Lord's Supper in faith. You'd be able to think to, I don't, I don't know. To me, this is just hanging there, waiting to be 
grasped as our go-to verb regarding salvation. And for some reason, we go to things that are way more complicated and way less biblical. Um, and I don't know why. It's because that's what people grow up hearing. But why? That's a large point. Well, I don't know why, but... Um, um, can you real quick tell me, what was the Acts thing? Because I wrote down the wrong Acts chapter 22. Just chapter 22. Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to leave the Acts first. Paul, Paul has been struck blind uh, as a picture for him of his own spiritual blindness. And, oh, all right, we're, we're getting to the end of class. Real quick, the distinction here is between lumbano, a Greek word, which means to receive, receive Christ, receive sight, receive circumcision as a sign. None of these things. You don't have to self-circumcise. It's cool. If you're in Shechem, I guess you do, but then it goes badly for you. Versus the Greek word dekamai, which is more active, which means to take. Uh, like the Bereans took, dekamai the message uh, with great eagerness to see if it was, you know, search the scriptures. Uh, we don't take salvation. We receive it. And I think that is what we want to keep in mind. Uh, and when someone says, I accepted Christ at age 10, I don't start arguing with them. I say, praise the Lord, that's amazing. I accepted Christ at age five. Uh, not not because I beat you, but because I also accepted Christ. <laughs> and, then, and then some Presbyterians like, well, I did when I was baptized at four days old. But uh, the, the idea of receiving, I think, is so helpful in reminding us what saving faith is versus all the others. Because all the others are going to be more an active thing on my part versus a passive thing uh, on God. God's doing the active giving of the gift and me receiving it. I think what I would have understood would be if you would ask me, when did you believe? Mm. Because to me, my confirmation was me saying, I believe, like confirming, I believe all of these things. That would have made sense to me. Okay. Just so you know. Well, next time I am wooing a Missouri Synod Lutheran girl, I will ask her that. <laughs> I think it's time just to go. I have something I need to do in between now and class. So thanks for this discussion, and we will pick it up next week with the next question.